everyone, and welcome to the latest episode of Are You Kidding Me? I'm Naomi Schaefer-Riley, a resident fellow at the American Enterprise Institute. And I am Ian Rowe, also a resident fellow at AEI. And today we are joined by Angela Rashidi, our colleague at AEI. She's actually the Rowe Scholar in Poverty Studies. And we wanted to talk today about the issue of child poverty. It's been a lot in the news lately. And there have been some proposals both on the left and the right for how to combat this issue. And this is Angela's specialty. And so we wanted to sort of pick her brain about some of the options out there now for combating child policy. So Angela, can you describe sort of what the left and the right are offering in this regard? And then we can sort of get into the question of what is likely to succeed and what is likely to actually help kids. Sure. And Ian and Naomi, it's great to be with you and have this important discussion. So yeah, we've had quite a flurry of activity recently, mostly focused on how to reduce child poverty, but it's actually become a much larger discussion just of how to address the needs of families in this country. And so this idea of a child allowance has kind of been put forward by both sides, which actually has a long history in this country. It's been proposed for a number of years and has a very long history in mostly European countries. And so basically the proposals that are out there now is on one side, we have a proposal from Senator Romney that basically is to provide a per child allowance. And he's proposing $4,200 for children under six and $3,600 for children who are older paid out monthly and going up to families that have pretty high income levels. So about $200,000 dollars in annual income for a single individual with children and up to 400,000 for married individuals. And so Senator Romney's proposal is designed to reduce poverty because it's going to all children under those income levels, but because it goes up to such high income levels, he has put it forward as a proposal to help families with children afford what we all know is the expense of of raising children and to be a public policy towards family support. On the other side, we have the Democrats who really have kind of year after year proposed something that looks like a child allowance. And what they are proposing is, and it's part of the the reconciliation bill that's currently being considered, they're actually proposing to provide a per child monthly payment as well. They're proposing to do it to families with slightly lower income. So the cutoffs would be about $75,000 for single individuals and $150,000 for married individuals. And that payment would be on top of all of the benefits that are currently already available to families, like food assistance, housing assistance, other cash assistance. And their proposal is really designed also around reducing poverty, but again, just kind of an effort to provide assistance to families to help them raise their children. Wow, Angela, thank you for that. I mean, what's interesting is efforts around child poverty and welfare policy are not new. So can we step back just for a second beyond these two particular proposals? What have we learned over the last 30 years about how to most effectively address issues of child poverty while also not achieving the unintended consequences of reducing work or other things that are actually fundamental to permanently escaping from poverty? Yes, it's a great question. And I mean, your last point is exactly right, because poverty is a problem of having not enough income. So just from a very kind of obvious perspective, if you just give people more money, they won't be in poverty. But the reason that doesn't always work is because of we have unintended consequences associated with that. 
And as you mentioned, that can be reduced employment and it can be various other things like leading to other behaviors. So what we have learned over time is that providing families with unconditional cash payments that are designed simply to transfer money to those families and then increase their income does lead to unintended consequences that in the long run can be actually more harmful to families than poverty. And some of those unintended consequences are really the two main ones are reduced employment and all the financial and non-financial benefits of employment. And the other is marriage. We find that it can kind of replace the needed income from a second parent and can actually reduce marriage. And we have a long history with kind of trying out these different policies. So the the one that we kind of hear about the most is kind of a pre-welfare reform. We call it aid to families with dependent children, which was a cash payment, a cash transfer from the government to low-income, mostly single moms that has a long history, but really in kind of the 80s and 90s became a very large program, had no strings attached to it, no employment expectations. And it became a really large program. And as the program became bigger and bigger, serving more and more families, we actually learned that more and more of those families were in poverty. And I think that's when it really, the light bulb went off saying, this is not the best way to reduce poverty. Reducing poverty comes from increasing employment, giving people skills and and the freedom to go into the labor market and provide for their own families rather than relying on the government. And so we had the welfare reform effort in the 1990s that really shifted that narrative. And it was all about the importance of work and really encouraging single moms to go into the labor market. And what we found over time is that employment, when it was coupled with policies designed to supplement work, and by that I mean we had the earned income tax credit that provided refundable tax credit to families who were working. So they had their earnings, plus they had additional money from the government and also had food assistance that made made those earnings go so much farther than they would if they were just earnings alone. And what we saw over time, really since the 1990s, is this very large reduction in poverty when it's properly measured, especially among children. I mean, we have seen poverty rates among children cut by at least a third. And it's really a combination of employment and these other policies that I mentioned. So Angela, it's interesting. I think a lot of outside observers sort of looked at these two policies and wondered, you know, why the cutoff from the Romney child allowance was so high. I mean, what? why are we getting this from the right, this much higher level of income cutoff? You mentioned, I think, $200,000 for single and $400,000 for families. I mean, those are not kids, we presume, who are living in poverty. Are there other, you know, sort of goals of this plan that we should be thinking about? And is this plan going to achieve anything else? You know, what is it meant to achieve besides reducing child poverty? Yes, great question. So I, I think that There was a little bit of a lack of articulating what the guiding principles behind the Romney proposal were. And so what we end up with was some people would describe it as an anti-poverty effort. Other people described it as support for working families. And other people would describe it as kind of a pronatal or policy or ways to increase fertility. And so what I think the Romney team was trying to accomplish was to show, yes, we think that American families across the income spectrum are facing challenges in kind of living the life that they want to live. And it is government's role to, in some ways, 
give them some of their own money back, meaning these are working families, we can give some of their own tax dollars back through a tax credit. And then it's hard to do that only for middle and higher income families. So those kind of policies are always coupled with assistance to lower income families. And so what you end up getting then is this very large policy that, that really covers those at the bottom of the income scale as well as the high income scale. And I think that that's probably one of the one of the main criticisms of the Romney proposal is that it was trying to accomplish too much with one specific policy. And so you end up, yeah, with this kind of, again, lack of guiding principles and sort of this one size fits all approach to problems that we know aren't necessarily solved by one size fits all. I mean, and just to put some hard numbers to that, you know, it used to be that I think conservative policy on these issues was focused on this idea of temporary, targeted, and timely. And your analysis or that you've highlighted is that with the Romney proposal, the top quintile of earners would experience more than 19% of the benefit, almost equal to the lowest quintile. So why would we go for a policy that's trying to address child poverty when it's all literally almost equal distribution across the five quintiles of income. Exactly. And that's why I wouldn't even describe the Romney proposal as an anti-poverty effort. It was presented in a way by some scholars. They had done an analysis to show what it would do for poverty, but clearly the distribution, I mean, it's in, it was intended to be a universal child allowance. No matter a child's income, it was going to be a government payment for that child. And so really not, not an anti-poverty program by itself. Right. I just wanted to sort of go back because Angela had mentioned this sort of this pro-natalist idea behind mm-hmm. the policy. And I kind of wanted to, you know, see if we could, you know, draw you out a little bit on that. What is the argument for paying people to have more children? And, and do we need to do that now? Yeah, there is kind of this huge push. So, I mean, there is declining fertility and that's in the U.S. And that's also in, in almost all countries, at least developed countries in the world. And some countries are doing you know, worse than the U.S. in terms of they're, they're not even producing enough babies to replace people they have. The U.S. has experienced declining fertility, and there's some scholars who are starting to raise some real concerns that this can, can be a problem and a potential severe problem for the U.S. kind of into the future. And so it sparked this discussion about, well, what then should we be doing about that? And is there a role for public policy to try to either reverse these trends or at least slow the decline in fertility? And kind of the way then, so people look at that problem and say, we have declining fertility and try to think of, well, why is fertility declining? And there's not, I would argue, not a whole lot of really in-depth analysis of what's driving that lower fertility. I think there's a lot of potential explanations. Financial is certainly one of them, but I think it's a stretch to think that giving families and giving even people who are thinking about having children a couple of extra thousand dollars a year is going to encourage them to have more kids that's somehow going to reverse our declining fertility. But that is the argument that has been made and, and part of the motivating factor for some of these child allowance proposals. Yeah. And are we indifferent? So let's say, let's say that is the goal. Are we indifferent to more kids being born if most of those kids would be born outside of marriage? So quite a bit of the commentary I've seen, it has been indifferent to that. It's also interesting when you're talking about, you know, families who are making, you know, two or three or even $400,000, you know, what are the factors in their decisions about whether to have more kids? 
you know, as you said, it doesn't seem like a lot of money relative to those income levels. But, you know, there are also these trade-offs that people experience. And I know that, you know, some of the scholars have cited people's ideal fertility level, you know, how many children they would ideally like to have. And it turns out that we're having fewer children than we would ideally like to have. But I would also love to see sort of an analysis of what other things people ideally would like to have and the kind of trade-offs they're making. Like maybe they would ideally like all their children to go to private schools or they would ideally like to live in a you know safer neighborhood or they would you know ideally like to have all their children go to college debt free you know those are things that factor into people's decisions about whether or not to have more children and i'm not sure as you said that you know the level of payment that we're talking about is going to change that but you know also there are lots of things like people want that don't even involve money that affect whether they're going to decide to have more children you know some people feel like if you have more <laughs> Then three or four children, you know, it'll be hard to maintain your sanity. And (laughs) (laughs) are you kidding me? That's not true. (laughs) We're we're all in favor of having many children, but it does turn out that that they can test your patience sometimes. So anyway, just 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 a thought. (laughs) Well, I mean, with four children of my own, I always say that the psychological costs come into play much more than the financial costs, that's for sure. But I think, yeah, Naomi, I mean, you make some very good points. And I think when these questions are asked of, and it's usually of women about their desired fertility, they're never asked in the context of those trade-offs. So for example, I mean, one of the driving factors behind declined fertility is that women over time have been going to school longer and have been establishing their careers. And so they then get married later and then they're having children later, which means there's just fewer years to have children. So, but the question's not asked about desired fertility. Would you give up those years of education or would you give up that career ladder that you got on in order to have more children? And so I think it's, it's a really hard kind of question to interpret. And I do think that there's some nuance that's missing in, in some of those arguments. Angela, let me, let me ask you about another idea that seems to be developing some momentum as relates to child poverty issues but more of a long-term view, which are means-tested baby bonds. Mm. And there seems to be some excitement in this idea that if you're a child being born within a certain income level, low-income level, so therefore 100% of the benefit would go to low-income kids, each year, essentially, the U.S. government would have a trust fund for you. And then at age 18, you would get money that could only be used based on this legislation, based on, you could only use it for your education, for savings, or to buy a home. So it's kind of an interesting, but very different intervention than what we've just been talking about. What do you think about those kinds of policies that have this kind of future orientation and restriction on the money for how it can be used? Yeah, that's a good question too. So, I mean, I'll just say in general, I kind of favor small government (laughs) and favor like government kind of hands off in letting people make decisions on their own. And from that sense, that's kind of the perspective I come from. But I do believe that there is a role for government. And sometimes that role can be providing opportunity to families who otherwise wouldn't have opportunity or kind of leveling the playing field. And so from that perspective, I think that when you lay out all the different policy options, the baby bond kind of option is more appealing to me because It does kind of level the playing field for children who were maybe born into circumstances through no fault of their own or no choice of their own, 
and just haven't been given some of the, the benefits and the resources that other children have. And so I find those policies to be at least more appealing than a child allowance, for example, because I don't see a baby bond type model necessarily changing behavior in the short term, like around employment, parental employment, things like that. I mean, maybe it could have some behavioral implications, but it's just so long term. Heaven forbid it's long term. Yeah, yeah, right, right. Like, why have a policy that's going to, we're going to see the benefits 20 years from now. But I do think a policy like that could really level the playing field for a lot of these kids. I mean, to think that they they could then go to school and have those resources available to them. And it gets around some of these other policies that we know would be harmful, like the debt forgiveness and the, like all these other policies that in the end do have these behavioral implications. So I kind of I kind of like the baby bond. And I think it could be part of a broader, more comprehensive kind of package that, it, that addresses poverty. What do you, to sort of, you know, sum up kind of where we are now, what do you think are the prospects for these different kinds of policies politically? I know, you know, there's, I think, some agreement now on the left and right about some of these policies for better or worse. So what do you think the prospects are here for these policies going forward? So I kind of started my career shortly after welfare reform in the late 1990s. And so even five years ago, I never would have thought that we'd be in a place that we're kind of thinking about returning to kind of unconditional cash transfers to families in general and low-income families and especially non-working families. But I've realized in the past few years that there that there's a lot of people out there on both sides of the aisle who no longer kind of agree with that assessment about the importance of work and the importance of supporting work. So I'm increasingly seeing the prospect of, yeah, moving towards more of a kind of unconditional sort of cash transfer to families, including low-income families. I think in the short term, there's still some pushback around those unconditional cash transfers to non-working people. So I would expect, you know, still work around refundable tax credits for people who have earnings but I see the refundable tax credits being kind of the policy of choice. And I would expect that to probably continue to be expanded over the next few years. It's amazing. History's ability to repeat itself, you know, and it seems like such a short time frame now because, you know, we're not that old and yet we can remember, you know, what, what welfare reform meant at the time and how much bipartisan support there was for it and after it, you know, to see these results. Well, that's what makes it so interesting because we describe these things as we have to be concerned about unintended consequences. But is it disputed, Angela, that the policies prior to what was happening over the last 30 years did have that effect? Because one could argue people do know what's likely going to happen, but in some way it's a desired outcome. Now they're intended consequences. (laughs) Right. Right. Yeah. I mean, there is kind of, I mean, there's this whole, and again, it's some of it's just on Twitter. So take it for what it's worth. Right. But I mean, there is this, this kind of push of recognizing that there might be a decrease in employment from some of these policies, but Hey, why is that a bad thing? And I think that that just reflects, I mean, maybe it's a generational thing. I mean, again, I, I never feel like I'm that old either, but I guess I'm old enough, <laughs> old enough to remember. Okay. All right. Fine. We're that old. <laughs> But it does seem to be like the kind of the younger cohort who did not kind of cut their teeth in the the early 2000s, late 1990s, and have really probably over the past decade have experienced very low teen birth rates, for example. 
seeing a decline in non-marital births, not the increase that we experienced in the 90s and the early 2000s. And so it's just a totally different context. And people who are 30 or younger never experienced the only 35% of never married mothers who worked, which is what we saw in the 1990s. Now it is 75%. And so the context is just totally different. And I think the unfortunate thing is that it might take a reversal of some of these policies and then 10, 15, 20 years down the road, we'll be back to where we were in the 1990s with extremely low employment rates, high poverty, increasing non-marital birth rates, teen birth rates, that maybe that's what we'll see with a reversal of these policies. And at that point, we'll go back to the debates of the 1990s and say, well, what do we do about it? Yeah. Well, we're so young that we'll still be, you know, back here. <laughs> we'll live to see it. We'll live to see it. <laughs> the baby bond, when, when we're having that discussion, baby bonds will start to kick in and all these low-income kids will get ready for college, right? Right, right. <laughs> all right. Well, thank you so much, Angela, for joining us. It's been a lovely conversation. We really appreciate your insights into these issues. This has been another episode of Are You Kidding Me? I'm Naomi Schaefer-Riley. And I'm Ian Rowe. And you can find our podcast every other week. We release it on the AEI podcast channel or wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks again.